Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone. This is Jonathan Strickland with Tech Stuff. And today we're going to tackle a subject that I've talked about in the past, actually, way back in 2008. Back when you were knee-high to a grasshopper, Chris Paulette and I did an episode called How MP3 Files Work. And we talked about the lossy file format. And we actually revisited it. In 2011, we did an episode about the iPod and about MP3 players. But I really thought it would be a good idea to revisit MP3 files, MP3 players, digital audio in general, the difference between digital audio and analog, and all of that history, uh, to really give a deep dive. Because back in those days, we did really short episodes, and so we weren't able to give it the full coverage that I think it deserved. Uh, and we actually reached a point in history that I did not anticipate. And I am, of course, talking about the day when I said, you know what? I don't need to carry a smartphone and an MP3 player. I held out for a really long time. You guys who have been longtime listeners of Tech Stuff might remember that I really liked dedicated devices. Like, I really liked having a digital camera, and I really liked having an MP3 player, and I really liked having a phone that was a phone. And now I'm like, no, I'm good with just one device doing all that kind of thing. So, uh... Since we've reached that point, the point where our machines are sophisticated enough to either have enough storage space to carry a, a, an impressive music collection or, more likely, as the things as things have changed these days, um, access to a streaming service where I don't even have stuff stored permanently or like in any, any you know, lasting format on the phone itself. Instead, I'm streaming a file over the Internet to listen to dynamically. I thought, why not talk about the MP3? Because who knows, in a few years, that might just be a distant memory. So this is going to be the first of a three-part series. And I want to let you guys know, I'm not going to record all of these and publish them all one right after the other. So it's not going to be MP3 part one, part two, part three in a row uh, in this episode, we're going to look at how digital audio works in general and how it's different from analog audio. Uh, and we're also going to talk about how the MP3 was created and what it does. In the next episode, I'm going to take a deeper dive into how an MP3 file works, how it compresses audio. It gets really technical. And in the final episode of the series, we're going to explore the history of the MP3 player and how Apple ended up dominating that space for so long, to the point that we have things called podcasts. Uh, but don't worry, I'll have other episodes to divide up this content. So like I said, it's not all going to be in a row. I don't want you to have a month of MP3-related uh, episodes. But, uh, you know, every couple of episodes, expect one of these it's kind of a an interesting subject, I think. So to start it all off, we all have to take a quick trip to Germany. So anyone who is not in Germany, get your passport. I was actually in Germany not that long ago. I got to visit Berlin and had a wonderful time. And in Germany, there's a company called Fraunhofer Gesellschaft. And you might wonder, well, what does this company do? They think. I joke that my profession, that my title that I should put on my business card, it should say professional smart person. 
Well, no joke. That's what these people are. They, they specialize in research and development, applied research. Uh, it's a whole company that specializes in applied research and it's huge. It encompasses 67 institutes and research units across Germany. Well, back in the eighties, there was a researcher named, uh, Karl Heinz Brandenburg and Karl Heinz made a breakthrough around 1986, 1987, uh, and came up with this clever idea about encoding audio. He was actually working toward creating a way that would allow for high audio quality transfer, but having a low bit rate sampling so that file sizes and transfer times wouldn't get out of control. Because you got to remember, this is the 80s. This is before the World Wide Web was a thing. That would that wouldn't happen until the early 90s. So the Internet was very young. In fact, they weren't even looking at the Internet as a method of distribution for this particular type of encoded audio. They were looking at using this to transmit across telephone lines. So they needed to have something that was going to be high quality but low space. So what the heck does that mean? All right, well, digital audio and analog audio are very different things. So to understand that, we need to look at how sound works and how we describe sound because that informs how we can capture sound and replicate those qualities digitally. So stick with me. We're going to go back to school for some basic sound science. And this goes back to the way sound physically moves through a medium, whether that's a solid or through the air or through water. Sound is vibration. Now, we sense this primarily through hearing it or sometimes feeling it. If it's the right frequency and the right amplitude, we can actually feel sound. Anyone who stood close to, say, a subwoofer that was really blasting out bass notes, you know what I'm talking about. You can feel it pressing against you. Well, sound travels through the air when molecules vibrate against each other. And this creates instances of increased pressure and decreased pressure at what is a hyper-local level. We're not talking about weather maps here. We're talking about tiny little areas. So this increase and decrease in pressure is something that we can sense as sound. Uh, when those changes in pressure affect a diaphragm, such as one that's in a microphone or maybe your eardrum, for example, it causes the diaphragm to actually move. So increased pressure pushes the diaphragm in. And decreased pressure doesn't really pull the diaphragm out. I mean, you could say it it pulls the diaphragm out, but to be more accurate, the diaphragm actually pushes outward because the pressure on the outside is lower than the pressure on the inside. But you get what I'm saying. The diaphragm begins to to flex inward and outward depending upon the amount of pressure that it's it's encountering. You could imagine this being kind of like a drum drum, not an eardrum, but an actual drum and striking it. Uh, that's the same sort of thing. So sound is the fluctuations of pressure, which we can diagram as a wave or a wavelength, a waveform on an XY axis. So the horizontal line, that axis, that represents time that has passed. And the vertical axis represents the amplitude or the volume of the sound wave. The wavelength of the sound, which is the distance between successive points on a wave, such as like the successive crests on a wave, that tells you a lot about the frequency. So sound moves at a constant rate through a given medium. 
but it moves at different rates through different media. So in other words, it moves at a different speed through a solid than it does through air. If the crests of each sound wave are really close together, that's a high-frequency sound. Uh, more waves will pass through an arbitrary point within a second than waves that are spaced further apart. That would be a lower-frequency sound. Higher-frequency sounds have a higher pitch than lower-frequency sounds. So if you hold a single note at a constant frequency, you'll have what is called a simple harmonic motion. That means the vibrations are moving at a constant rate, inward and outward. The cycle is constant. A tuning fork is a good example of this. So uh, if you hear a clear C note played on a musical instrument, that could be a simple harmonic motion. It won't be, but it could be. I'll tell you why it won't be in a minute. So the frequency of vibration doesn't change, and so you would get this very clear note as a result. And if you were to diagram it, you would have very regular crests and troughs, all of the same amplitude and distance from each other. The frequency and volume would remain constant. Uh, assuming, of course, that you're not trying to change the frequency or volume. Now, this is where I point out most musical instruments don't produce a single clear note, even if played expertly. They actually create several resonant frequencies. So every physical object resonates at several different frequencies. You've probably seen this in various programs. Mythbusters did one about bridges, the idea being that if you were to uh, have a group of people marching on a bridge at the bridge's resonant frequency, it could cause the bridge to start to vibrate and swing out of control. Well, there's a reason for this. You may have also seen videos of people singing a certain note and causing a crystal glass to shatter. That's because that crystal glass does have a resonant frequency, and if you can hit that resonant frequency at the right volume, you can cause the glass to start to deform or the crystal in this case, to deform to a point where it loses integrity and it shatters as a result. Well, uh, the resonation of an object is dependent upon lots of different factors, and in fact, most stuff will resonate at different frequencies, but at different intensities. Like, there might be one sweet spot, one specific frequency that will have the greatest effect. But other related frequencies may also have an effect. It'll just be to a lesser extent. Well, if you were to pluck a guitar string, just you, you've tuned it to whatever note, doesn't matter. Let's say it's you've tuned it to, to G, and you play the G string on your guitar, uh, the note that you will hear, really, over all others will be G. That That is going to be the one that will sound the loudest. But it will also play resonant frequencies at a decreased amplitude, in other words, a decreased volume. So you still hear the intended note above everything else, above all the other resonant frequencies. This is called a complex tone. And that collection of frequencies and their amplitudes is called the spectrum of sound. You get a full spectrum. Now, some of the components of that complex tone will be uh, imperceptible to you. you. They'll be so quiet that you wouldn't really notice them. They might affect the overall quality of the sound, but in such a subtle way that it may be difficult for you to even put it into words. Each of those little components is called a partial. So in the example of a guitar string, the partials are all integers of the same fundamental frequency, and the sound has a harmonic spectrum. 
But uh, as you get further away from that fundamental frequency, the amplitude decreases significantly. So like I said, you get far enough away, they are technically there, but they might be imperceptible to you. Now, some sounds have frequencies that aren't integers of a fundamental frequency and are inharmonic. Uh, certain bells, like if you hear a bell ring, you can probably pick out a couple of different frequencies there that are not harmonic frequencies. These are very complex sounds, and to our perception, if it's complex enough, it can seem like there's no single discernible pitch there, like there's no fundamental frequency over all the others. If it's complex enough, we call it noise. That is the technical term. It is noise. Now, the unit we use to measure frequency is the hertz. H-E-R-T-Z. Uh, Typical human hearing ranges from 20 hertz, uh, which means a wave will pass a given arbitrary point 20 times within a second, all the way up to 20 kilohertz, which means a wave will pass a particular point in time 20,000 times in a second, or a particular point on your waveform 20,000 times in a second. And most of our sensitivity tends to be between 1 or 2 kilohertz up to 4 or 5 kilohertz. That's generally where we have human voices and we've really gotten good at picking those out of over everything else. So our sensitivity of hearing is really concentrated between one kilohertz and four kilohertz, or two and five, depending upon whom you ask. Now we get back over to amplitude. That is referring to the height of the wave. It also refers to the volume, the loudness of something. Amplitude means bigness. So how big is the sound? Well, the greater the amplitude, the louder it is. And amplitudes can have an enormous range and affect how we perceive sound. So, for example, take a really complicated classical piece of music. It's just easy to explain it in that term. You might have a stretch in that classical piece of music in which all the instruments are more or less playing at a similar volume. So the sound from each instrument section has a similar amplitude. But then there might be one segment where an instrument group or maybe even a single soloist has an increased amplitude, an increased volume. It rises over the rest of the orchestra. And that peak of the amplitude is called the attack of the sound. And the entire range of amplitudes is called the amplitude envelope. Now, this is important when we get to MP3s because the way we perceive these sounds uh, that that has everything to do with the way the MP3 was designed. The whole point of the MP3 was to try and create a small file size to represent what we can hear and kind of ignore everything else. But we'll get to that in a little bit more uh, more time. So this is really interesting to me. If you take a sound and you double its amplitude, you you increase the amplitude by twofold. A listener would not necessarily feel that the sound is twice as loud. Human hearing is incredibly subjective. And typically, for most listeners, it would require much more than doubling a sound's amplitude for them to feel that the sound itself was twice as loud. This perception of volume is important when we get to the lossy formats for audio files. Now... I've given you all this information and I know everyone is probably thinking, you know, I, I learned this 
in primary school, elementary school, all of this is really familiar to me. And you're maybe rolling your eyes because it's so basic. But I think it's important to have that refresher so that you can understand the difference between sound as we experience it and sound as the way we encode it digitally and replicate it digitally. For one thing, this illustrates how sound in the real world is a continuum. It's a continuum both in frequency and amplitude. You can have sound changing in frequency very smoothly from one pitch to another. You can also have sound increase or decrease in amplitude in a very smooth way. And it is continuous. It's unbroken. It can have smooth transitions. And these qualities provide challenges when we want to describe something digitally because at the heart of digital information is the bit, the basic unit of information. It is a unit of information that only has two states, zero or one. It's essentially off or on. When you get down to defining information in just two states, then you start to look at something that is continuous and you realize uh, this is going to be a challenge. How do I describe a continuous experience in very discrete amounts of information. And that's when we get to the methodology we've developed to digitally encode sound. Now, I'm going to get into that in just a minute. But before I do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, let's get back into it. So... We've talked about the nature of sound. Analog sound, by the way, tries to replicate exactly what we would experience in nature. It tries to create this continuous experience. So you get these smooth waves of frequencies and amplitudes. And that's why some people argue that that uh, analog styles of, of sound recordings are superior to digital ones. I don't necessarily think they're right, but they often feel that way. So something like a, um, an, a vinyl album, which is an analog format of digital, or for, sorry, an analog format of music storage, I should say, sound storage, uh, they think that that is superior to, say, a CD, which is a digital storage format. Uh, and who's to say? I mean, like, it, it, if your sense of hearing is incredibly well-tuned, you might be able to pick up on some differences. Or if someone did a really terrible job encoding music digitally, then that might reveal itself to you as well. Uh, but this is one of those things that I think a lot of people feel they can tell the difference, but if they were to do a double-blind test, they might be surprised at how difficult it is. If things, If everything's working the way it should, then it, there shouldn't be a perceptible difference. At any rate, digital audio has two really important factors, sample rate and bit depth, or to another extent, bit rate. We'll talk about bit rate as well. So the sample rate refers to how many times you reference an analog sound to create the digital version. So sound, like I said, is uninterrupted in the analog world. You've got that that nice wave form 
in the analog world. That's not how digital world works. Digital world, we have to describe that sound in a series of discrete snippets of sound. It's probably easiest to describe this with an analogy to movies on film. If you work with film, like you're creating a movie on film, then you know that you're not looking at a real moving picture when you see the film played out at the cinema. Instead, what you're looking at is a series of photographs. If you take a film strip and you look at it under a light, you'll see it's one after another photograph. It's just a series of pictures. It's only when you play them back at the right speed and you project it onto a screen that you get the illusion of continuous motion. But it's not really continuous. It's just this series of photographs played at 24 frames per second in the case of actual film. So that ends up being very analogous to the way we encode digital audio. You take the analog recording and you take snapshots of sound. Uh, the more frequently you take those snapshots, the higher your sample rate. So in other words, if you did one a second, your sample rate would be awful. <laughs> you would have a sample rate of one. Uh, but the higher the sample rate, the closer your digital representation will be to the frequency in the analog sound format. Actually, what's really important to remember is that your sample rate has to be about twice, actually it does have to be twice, what the highest frequency sound is in your recording. It has to be. Because if it's not, it cannot encode that sound uh, accurately. It's kind of interesting. And you might wonder, how do we take these snapshots in the first place? Well, if you're capturing audio, let's say we're recording to digital. So we've got a microphone set up and we're recording to a digital uh, media storage. Like, let's just say we're recording straight to someone's hard drive. So we're talking into a microphone, recording to a hard drive. So you're using an analog microphone, let's say. You would need an analog to digital converter. Now, this particular component can receive discrete voltages from another device, like your microphone. So your microphone is converting sound into uh, differences in voltage. That's essentially how it communicates, so that it can then send that to some other element. In this case, it's sending it to the, uh, the analog-to-digital converter so that it can be stored digitally on your hard drive. So this analog digital uh, converter references or samples the discrete voltage many times every second in order to create a digital representation of the analog sound. It converts the voltages into numbers in a process called quantization. And we express those numbers in bits. So these are zeros and ones. When you want to play the digital audio, a digital to analog converter does the same process in reverse. So it takes this digital information, these zeros and ones, and converts it into a series of discrete voltages, which then can be amplified and sent to a speaker and create sound. So all of that's really important, but now let's let's talk about some concrete examples. And the best way to do this is to go with compact discs, because we have a standard sample rate for compact discs. And that standard sample rate is 44.1 kilohertz to create CD-quality audio. That means that the audio is sampled 44,100 times every second. 
But wait, I hear you say the range of human hearing you said only goes to 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. If it only goes up to 20 kilohertz, why are you sampling it 44,100 times every second? If it's 20,000 uh, times a second for the, the frequency, why go up to 44,100? Is there some relationship between that and the CD sample rate? And the answer is yes. So there is a theorem called the Nyquist-Shannon Sampling Theorem. And that states that the sample rate must be twice the maximum frequency of a recording in order to describe the frequency properly. So the general thought is the maximum frequency most humans can hear is 20 kilohertz. And for that reason, Philips and Sony, when they were working to create the CD format to make it a standard, they decided on 44.1 kilohertz as that standard sample rate for CD audio. It was more than double the top frequency generally considered to be in the upper level of human hearing. But what happens if you were to lower the sampling rate? What if you didn't sample at 44,100? What if you sampled at, let's say, 16 kilohertz? So 16,000 times a second you sample it. Well, that means you would only be able to record and replicate any sound with a frequency up to 8 kilohertz or less. So 8,000 hertz or less. But if you had any sound that was greater than 8,000 hertz or 8 kilohertz, anything higher than that, it would be folded down to fit below the 8 kilohertz limit perceptually. That means the sounds you would hear in the playback could include frequencies that were not present in the original performance of that sound. So let's say that I'm using a sample rate of 16 uh, you know, kilohertz and someone is playing a musical instrument and they play a note that's at a 9 kilohertz frequency. Well, because I'm sampling at 16 kilohertz, my limit for frequencies is 8 kilohertz. If you play something at 9 kilohertz, what happens is it the, the recording seems to fold the sound back. And it folds it back at the same limit that the sound goes over the sample rate, or rather the Nyquist limit, I should say, not the sample rate itself, but the Nyquist limit. So nine kilohertz sound played. My limit is eight kilohertz. Well, nine kilohertz is one kilohertz more than eight. So it folds it back and the sound you would hear on the recording would be seven kilohertz. So the original sound is nine kilohertz. The played back sound is seven kilohertz. And you would hear something recorded that wasn't actually played. That's why you have to have a really high sample rate so that you don't have these instances where sound gets folded back into the frequency range. Because otherwise, what you are hearing is not an accurate representation of what was actually generated, what you were trying to record. This whole uh, phenomenon, by the way, is called foldover or sometimes aliasing. So that's sample rate. But then we've got bit depth. Now, this is all about measuring the volume or amplitude of a sound. So you have a range. You just make an arbitrary range to say, like, we're going to go quietest to loudest. And you just define what that range is. It could literally be any range. Let's say you say zero to 100. Zero is dead silence. No sound at all. 100 is as loud as the sound ever gets. It's the peak volume of sound. 
That means you could describe all the different volumes within that recording at a number between 0 and 100. But let's say you take that same recording, and instead of making the range 0 to 100, you say it's 0 to 2,000. You haven't made the volume louder. The volume is still the exact same as it was when you called the range 0 to 100. But what you have done is added more units. You have created more precise steps between absolute silent and as loud as it gets. So you've just increased the size of the range so that you can be more precise in the differences in volume. And this is really important. So let's say that you've got a sound that you rank at 78 and another sound that you rank at 79. And that's going to be the same for both of these ranges. Uh, just two different examples, actually. So you've got your 0 to 100 range. And a 78 would be 78% of the loudest sound in the entire recording. And a 79 would be a 79% of the loudest sound in the entire recording. That's a actually pretty hefty jump. But let's say we instead went with that 0 to 2,000 range. And you still had 78 and 79. Well, a 78 would represent 3.9% of the full volume. And a 79 would represent 3.95% of a full volume. In other words, you'd be able to mark much more subtle differences in volume. And that means you could have more nuance in your recording. And since we're talking about a natural sound to start off with, so you're taking a natural sound and you're trying to digitize it. Smooth changes in amplitude are possible in natural sound. Using a broader range to describe the volume is best if you want to get an accurate representation or resolution of that sound. Going back to that 0 to 100 range, changes in volume would be more chunky. Two sounds that have slight differences in amplitude would end up being defined as being identical because you wouldn't have the precision. You know, you couldn't say this one's 78 and a half. It would either be 78 or 79. So you could have two sounds that in a greater precision, you could tell the difference between their volumes. But if you have that lower, that more shallow bit depth, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference of it. You would lose that nuance, that subtlety. This is part of the, the reason why people say like, uh, a lot of the modern music has uh, uh, lower ranges and changes in volume, like the, the loudest loud parts and the softest soft parts. That range has decreased over time, which a lot of people have argued has meant that music has gotten less complex and therefore, in some minds, less interesting. That's on a related uh, kind of philosophy to what I'm talking about here. So... You want to have those smaller steps between each unit so you can create greater resolution, more smoothness to the recorded audio. And it's actually the bit rate in CD audio that will ma help make the sound seem smooth. So if you ever listen to 8-bit music, you know, like the kind from old video game consoles, that sound is really harsh and sort of chunky. It has an appeal, but it's not... You know, it's not smooth at all. It, it, it can create an amazing effect, but if you want to represent true analog sound, it's not awesome. But if you went up to 16-bit, that's CD-quality bit depth. It's much better. Uh, professional recording studios will do 24-bit or 32-bit 
because they're going to do a lot of post-processing work on those audio files. And when you do that post-processing work, if you do it at 16-bit, the the stuff you're doing, the changes you make can become noticeable. And most times you don't want that. You don't want it to be, you know, you don't want it to stand out from the rest of the audio file. But that's the only reason they go up to 24-bit or 32-bit. There'd be no point in playing it back at that rate, that bit depth, because human hearing is not so adept to tell the difference, at least not for most humans. So if you played back a recording at 16-bit and another one at 24-bit and it's the same piece, most people would not be able to tell the difference because you've already reached a resolution that equals the precision of human hearing. Keeping in mind, again, human hearing is subjective. Not everyone is equal. There are some people who have incredible hearing who may be able to pick out that difference. Uh, I am not one of those people. But I am a person who's going to tell you. We'll get to the last section in just a bit. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so bit depth, what we just talked about, that can be thought of as how well the sound is is described. Uh, And the sampling rate is how frequently or how much the sound is described. And CD audio quality has 16-bit audio. Uh, That means that they actually have 65,536 different levels of volume that they can describe within an audio track. So my example of 0 to 2,000, that is primitive compared to CD audio because it has the 16-bit style, 65,536 different levels. And how is that possible? Well, when we say 16-bit, remember a bit represents two states, 0 or 1. So you take the number 2 and then you raise it to the power of 16. Uh, So... You multiply 2 by itself 16 times, and you get 65,356. So that's that's where that number comes from. Now, with your digital sample, you have a collection of points that roughly replicate the shape of an analog sound wave. It's going to look a little funky, but you'll be able to see what the frequency and amplitude generally was of the original recording if you were to plot this on an XY axis. But if you were just to connect each successive point with a straight line, even as close together as they would be because you're looking at 44,100 times a second, it'd sound pretty awful. So we actually use an algorithm called interpolation to join the points smoothly to imitate a sound waveform. And that gives a musical playback program the ability to replicate an analog waveform. And that's actually called pulse code modulation, or PCM. And if you store audio uh, intact this way, you would have what we call a lossless audio file, which means exactly what it sounds like. None of that data would ever get filtered out of the file. Even if the sounds were beyond the range of human hearing, they would be recorded and you would have a lossless file format. Those files tend to be quite big, depending upon how long a recording you make, of course. All right, so now... Here's where it gets a little confusing. And I think I even said bit rate a couple of times when I really meant bit depth earlier. But up to this point, I really was talking bit depth. So my apologies to all of you out there if a bit rate slipped through. 
because I did not mean it. Now I'm going to talk about bitrate and show you how it's different than bit depth. Bitrate refers to the amount of data audio uses per second or requires per second of recording. And you derive bitrate from the bit depth and the sampling rate. It's represented as bits per second. So again, let's go to CD quality sound. That makes it easy. You have 44,100 samples per second. You've got 16 bits or two bytes, because remember a byte is eight bits. So you've got two bytes to describe each sample. So two bytes for 44,100 samples per second. Uh, plus you probably are going to have to multiply that by two because you're probably recording in stereo. So you have to do that once for each track. So you get that number. Then you have to multiply that by 60 seconds to determine how much data per minute you are creating when you're recording. And with CD quality audio, that ends up being about 10 megabytes of data per minute. Now these days, that's not really that big a deal. Because we're dealing with super fast internet speeds and enormous hard drives. But just a few years ago, that was considered to be a really sizable file. I mean, an enormous file. And so if you wanted to find a way to distribute digital audio so it didn't take up too much space, you had to figure out how you could compress those files and make them smaller, make them more manageable. And now we can finally... Get back to Germany and Herr Brandenburg. You thought we left him behind. We didn't. He was just part of a flashback. So let's go to the MP3. First of all, it gets its name from the Motion Picture Experts Group, also known as MPEG. It was part of uh, a project that MPEG was doing that was looking at ways of compressing audio along with uh, the work that they were doing with video files. It's actually named after the process that they developed uh, called MPEG Audio Layer 3. So yes, there was a Layer 1 and a Layer 2. Layer 3 was a refinement of the approach and was the one that was actually successful in the market. Now, Brandenburg was working with an instructor. Uh, he was pursuing, Brandenburg was pursuing a PhD at the time and trying to come up with a practical means of transmitting digital audio across phone lines. And in the process, he began to experiment with algorithms that could take digital audio information and determine which bits are significant. Anything that was deemed insignificant could be discarded. So the thinking was that information we cannot perceive as human beings is worthless. There's no point in preserving it in an audio file format. It's just taking up space that we can't even perceive when we play it back. So there's no reason to replicate it. There's no reason to record it. Leave it out. And that way you could compress digital audio files. Or to put it another way, if the algorithm determined that a sound was outside the range of human hearing, it would drop it from the encoding process. So you get a sound file much smaller than the more accurate representative version. So the lossless version would be more accurate to the original sound. But this new version, what we would call a lossy version, a compressed file, would be able to replicate it pretty well if it's designed properly. And it may be to a point, if you design it well enough, that you couldn't tell the difference between the two. Uh, that took some time. <laughs> it was not easy to do. So the new file, the new version, the compressed one, the lossy format, would only have the actual relevant data. And from that point forward, the challenge was to determine 
what are the benchmarks to figure out what is relevant versus what is irrelevant? Because if you lose too much information, you change the quality of the recording, meaning it's no longer an accurate representation of the original sound. So you might say that any sound below 20 hertz isn't relevant because it's below the range of your typical human human's ability to, to hear. You might say that anything above 20,000 hertz or 20 kilohertz is irrelevant because humans typically can't hear sounds above that frequency. Uh, you might say that sounds at a certain amplitude or lower are irrelevant because they're so quiet that humans wouldn't hear them. Or you might say that if a certain sound is at a lower amplitude and a different sound is at a higher amplitude, the higher amplitude sound is drowning out the lower amplitude sound. And so we humans don't really perceive the lower amplitude sound. This is where we get into psychoacoustics. It's not just what we hear, but how we perceive the sound itself. And a lot of that went into formulating the algorithms to figure out how to compress this music in a way where you get a recording that represents the original without, uh, you know, compromising too much and still getting the file size to a manageable size. And these are the decisions you have to make to figure out which bits of information you keep and which ones you ditch. Well, Brandenburg and a team were working on refining this approach in the late 80s and early 90s. And he said at one point he thought he had nailed it. And then he heard an acapella song. It was Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega. And then he listened to the compressed MP3 version of that song using the the version of MP3 that had been developed up to that point. And he said it ruined the song. It trashed it. It sounded terrible. He said that other representations of music seemed fine with this particular approach. But when they went with this stripped down acapella song with this particular kind of you're in the middle of a space listening to Suzanne Vega sing, it ruined her voice. And so the team began to tweak the compression algorithms to correct for this problem. And it took a lot of work to figure out, OK, well, what are the elements of sound that we messed with that have created this issue? And ultimately, they were finally able to create an MP3 file that didn't distort or ruin the recording. Brandenburg said he listened to that song somewhere between 500 and 1,000 times. And then he saw Suzanne Vega perform it live and he was able to recognize all of those subtle changes in her voice because he had paid so close attention to it during the process of tweaking this algorithm. And he said, ultimately, the real telling thing is he still enjoyed the song, <laughs> which says a lot about him. Me, I can't stand that song. But maybe it's just because to me, there's a point where it just sounds like someone is just singing about what they're doing. And I do that every day. No one gave me a record deal. All right, so getting back to MP3s. By 1991, they had finalized the, the file format and created the standard. But it was just one of several possibilities for encoding audio, and it didn't immediately take off. It wasn't immediately adopted by consumers. By 1995, the team had identified the Internet as a possible distribu distribution method for MP3 files rather than just over telephone lines. They said... Well, it could, technically, we could send MP3s across the Internet. So you could send manageable-sized files across this network. On July 14, 1995, they created the file extension .mp3. 
Now, it would take a little bit longer uh, for software to take advantage of this. One of the early programs was Winamp, which made MP3 decoding accessible. And from that point, the file format began to take off. To follow would be dedicated MP3 players and sites that allowed people to upload and download compressed audio files, which also indicated a rise in piracy. And then in response to the rise in piracy, we saw an increase in DRM strategies, digital rights management, or copy protection if you prefer. And that all really ended up shaping a lot of the policies and uh, strategies that affect the internet today. So you could say that the MP3 is one of the reasons why the internet is the way it is right now and why arguments both for and against net neutrality have uh, formulated in certain ways. A lot of it is shaped by the MP3. So that kind of wraps up this discussion about digital audio in general and a little bit on MP3 files. In the next episode of this series, I will dive into a more technical explanation of what is actually going on with the MP3 compression algorithms. And I bet you can't wait to learn all about fast Fourier transforms. I know I can't. And like I said, I'll have other episodes to sprinkle in between this one and the next one and then the third one. So that way you won't just get digital audio overload. And if you guys have any comments or questions or suggestions for show topics or people I should interview or maybe people I should have on as a guest host, shoot them my way. My email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can always drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter with the handle techstuffhsw and I'll talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 